You're listening to WTF 2050. What's Tasmania's future? Thirty years goes like that. I wonder. We've actually shown we can do these sorts of things without risk. There was nothing. Hello, hello. <laughs> I'm Leanne Minchell, and I'm Anna Bateman. On this week's episode of WTF 2050, we talk to the 2018 Tasmanian of the Year, Scott Rankin, founder of Big Heart, a community arts company that was started in northwest Tasmania but has its tentacles all over the globe. Scott dropped by our Hobart offices and we had a really great chat. Here it is. Hello, I'm the creative director of Big Heart. (laughs) Thank you. I had a fairly unconventional childhood. I grew up on a Chinese junk, yeah, in Sydney Harbour on the Lane Cove River. And it came about because my parents, who were sort of dreamers in a way, my mother was a kindergarten teacher and deep enthusiast about the importance of childhood play. Play being the work of childhood, it's critical in terms of growing human beings, which is part of our obligation, to preserve that that area where you, you allow non-directed play to occur safely. So she was kind of unusual person and a big interest in very early days in autism and Asperger's and she was looking at those things and how play and pursuing the play of the the individual and then facilitating that can do some good things in those sorts of areas. They're really specialist things. I remember as a kid making these toys for my mother for other kids, like in almost a sweatshop, Britain and Ireland after the war and arrived with no money and um, as 10 pound palms basically. They loved the water. My father grew up on Belfast Lock and they couldn't afford Sydney real estate even then. So, <laughs> so that, but they became friends with an old fisherman who was retiring and it was a working harbour in those days. It wasn't just the horror of Sydney Harbour now with its, you know, tourist dollar and no nothing working. And the fisherman was retiring and this is the shed where he kept his boat in the beautiful tradition of fishermen finding tailor and yellowtail laced with mercury out of the harbour and then selling them at the fish shop. Not um, to mention the layers of lead. Yeah, all layers. of that. Really good. Nice, <laughs> nice uh, tartare lead sauce. <laughs> and so he was retiring and he said, oh, well, you can stay in the boat shed. And it was literally just a ramp into the water. And they initially just put their mattress on the rocks and the doors would open up and there was the water right there. When I was about three, it had been going on for a few years before that, the local council said, it's a shed, you can't live in the shed. Um, they said, look, it's fine if you want to live on a boat <laughs> and you can have holidays in the shed. So my dad then looked for a boat that was tall because he was taller than me. And he found this Chinese junk that has really good headroom. So he just bought it for almost nothing. And it had, it had a bit of a tragic past, so it was super cheap. So when the Maritime Services Board or the Water Police would come around, they'd say, you're not living on that boat, are you? No, we're in the shed. Yeah, no, we're in, we're in the, boat shed. the council would come by, no, we're living on the boat. And they were there for 21 years. Wow. So we were chucked out in the end. It's, How old were you when you were chucked out? I was 16, but they'd been there 21 years. Um, yeah, it was six squad cars of police turned up. It was my sort of first... Um, first Yeah, in, in, introduction to, um, you know, interesting power dynamics. And we were told we had to get out that afternoon and... We were just throwing things onto the junk and into the junk and into a van and then we slept for a few months in my dad's office because <laughs> he was a designer and manufacturer of beautiful um, specialist timber interiors, kitchens and things. 
he was never successful. I mean, he was award-winning, but he just was broke his whole life because um, he couldn't make enough kitchens and he was always ripped off by the clients who, you know, usually pretty wealthy, actually. But yeah. The building he was in was with uh, Carl Nilsson, who was a famous industrial designer and other firms like that. So it was really swank. And it was big plate glass windows, so we had to be up at 5 a.m. for a little while there, <laughs> pack up the mattresses, put them out in the back room, close the doors, put a chair against them. And how many and then, siblings were there? Two older sisters. Right. Mm. So there's five of you in this office. Yeah. Um, when we were growing up, my nan-nan, Irish grandmother who had terribly tragic time before the war, just before the war, and then during the war she was this stoic woman who who would get her ration cards with other women and they'd combine the ration cards and they'd put on tea parties basically for the merchant seafarers who were on the convoys during World War II and you know it's the it's the Atlantic graveyard because um, those ships were just picked off by U-boats etc and a lot of those seafarers they weren't recognized as part of the war effort in the same way you know they, they was a pretty hard time as it's one of my passions, seafaring now, and the way that, you know, currently there's 650,000 slaves at sea um, masquerading in this industry as seafarers, but they're really indentured labour. Anyway, it all goes back to these stories about her, and they would give them a party, basically, and cook for them, and, and then, because a lot of them wouldn't be coming back, they wouldn't make it. So the death of her husband, and then that, and then she burnt everything they owned, and then she came out to Australia, and I think she already had dementia then. And then so she, but she was also a, kind of a happy person in a lot of ways, super fit. So we'd be on this Chinese junk <laughs> with these Irish people, my two sisters, my parents, and Nan Nan, and, and she'd be doing star jumps at <laughs> 1 and 2 a.m. because she thought it was time for calisthenics. <laughs> so consequently... And we weren't allowed to live there, so we had to be super quiet as a family. We never had birthdays or... And one friend of mine used to come over, but no one else. And then when my sisters turned into women, <laughs> they were taken off the junk and put in the roof of the boat shed. <laughs> they were, my dad built them a loft and they lived up there. And so I suddenly went from surrounded by mad grandparents and mad sisters to yeah. slightly sullen sisters <laughs> to having this luxurious boat to myself. So when did you come to Taz? How old were you and what were the circumstances? Um, so it wasn't that long after that. We were then bumped from house to house because they were trying to rent and they didn't want to leave the water and it was pretty dodgy. And so, yeah, I, when I left home, I went to Sydney College of the Arts for a year and then I just came down to Burnie and went, oh, my God, this is like a micro Rotterdam. I want to live here. Wow. <laughs> and met the kind of creative foundations of my you know, artistic integrity. Um, 1980, 19, might have been 81, I can't remember quite. Yeah, 80, right. But the early 80s. Yeah. Um, well, it was, it, I, I guess part of it was that I want to get out of here. Like, I mean, it was a, I'd hung around with my parents a bit. I, I think I lived, so I lived in Chippendale as well. I don't know why I moved out or whatever. Might have been when I was at Sydney College of the Arts, I don't know. Because I went there for a year, and then, but I was just not interested in the shit that was going on at art school or design school then. I was looking at industrial design as a potential career and it was just setting me up, you know, to pander to money, basically. So, and there was no scope then to think about what design actually is, which is a way of thinking, which is transformational, which, you know, it's much more contemporary now. You can study design in the context of communities and transformational design and all that. But back then it was just toothbrush handles. <laughs> so I was dissatisfied with that, was very interested in art and in social justice, but not in where I was being pushed in either of them, really. And then 
the West Coast and the Franklin, the Gordon Franklin campaign was in the ether and it's pretty romantic and um, I had cousins that lived down here and Bob Brown was starting to be a thing and Bernie Mills were starting to close down or downsize. And I, was, um, I wasn't down for that but it was in the same kind of area. Bernie was in trouble, nobody was managing the change and it was going from um, a suckling town, a mill town with the dental care and you know everything through for a big percentage of the families and the young people was acting out a bit basically so I was asked to come down and essentially volunteer but work at a kind of a drop-in centre employment program and various things which I did for a little while and then I started making the art down in Burnie that would support me and then so that, what sort of art was that <laughs> so really you know good. yeah really really <laughs> good so you know I, I I, I created a lot in a lot of different forms, and a lot of the arrogance of the young where you, you, know, you think you're brilliant at everything, but I needed money, so I created some shows for restaurants, okay. and some people have still not recovered from having like, to sit like through. Dracula's or something. No, no it, was just a, it, was, it was essentially a 21-year-old who was making songs and poetry and all this stuff in character about all the social justice issues on the coast. So, you know, there was environmental things and there was uh, things to do with the pulp and, you know. Yeah. But it was comedy. But I would start off because I didn't have anyone to help and it was just me and I was just trying to make $45. <laughs> Written, directed, produced and starring. And so Monty's restaurant at Penguin, I would rock up and, and I'd have all the costumes on starting with the, a priest's cassock. Right. Because it was big. Yeah. Um, so I was doing all the op shops, getting all these things together. And it featured some of the worst possible ideas. Like it had a full clown costume underneath. <laughs> and so I went from cassock to large overalls to clown onesie. <laughs> and then down and down and down. Um, first of all, I'd do a set that was just sort of jazz. Yeah. Which is bad enough. In your priest cosset. <laughs> no, that was actually without that. Oh, that okay. was, that was yeah, the, yeah. the dinner music. People were like, oh, this is good. Okay, there's going to be eight songs or ten yeah. tunes. He's not going to sing, is he? No, that's nice. And, that was anyway. <laughs> and then I'd come out and do act one. <laughs> you just heard people just going quiet. <laughs> and then I'd say, thank you. And they'd go, great, now we can get on. And then I'd come out and do act two. <laughs> it was a terrible, I inflicted something terrible on the Northwest Coast. But it did mean I was producing stuff. Did you get a long run? Um, yeah, because there wasn't a lot of that sort of thing. There wasn't many options. <laughs> no. And I, and I would move, when they got sick of me, I'd move to another restaurant. <laughs> uh, I love your strapline or whatever it is of, like, it's hard to hate someone if you know their story. It's far more difficult to... It's hard, it? harder to hurt someone if you know harder their story. Harder to hurt someone if you know yeah. their story, mm. um, which I think is lovely. Do you think there's the potential to do more of that sort of flow conversation narrative that's not built on stories of victory in Tasmania and are they already happening? Yes I do think that and uh, in the unfolding story it's fantastic because there is the deep you know convict history that we love to drag tourists here for <laughs> and then there is the the dynasty based history yeah. the, the Midlands the agricultural sector. I mean, it's really, they're short dynasties, but we yeah. love that sandstone. Yeah. Well, it's like the building we're sitting in now. Yeah. And they are really interesting, you know, because they have the craving for class and the, the craving for the clarity that comes with class. Mm-hmm. Everyone can breathe out. Um, mm-hmm. You feel much more in the north, but much, much more in the northwest, the, the north-south rivalry. I mean, it's a true thing. You know, north and the south are kind of, 
in this conversation and then nobody even thinks about the Royal North West, which is great. <laughs> like even the federal group, they just, people get off the boat and they just go, Neow, and they chop off the North West. <laughs> so it's only now that places like Boat Harbour are being ruined by um, money coming in and, yeah. and the terrible architecture and the lack of aesthetic properties. It's very hard for small councils to have the clout to discuss aesthetics because mm. they're just hoping that somebody will build something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's tricky. Anyway, um, so I think there is a there is a conversation around that, partly because of the archipelago thing. Yeah. Um, and partly, to borrow a little bit from Michael Cathcart, um, he alerted me to this thing that I've been thinking about quite a bit, which is that the mainland has the very close and real myth of the inland sea, that we will find something. We will find... We must look that way. We feel a little bit ashamed and we stick to, quote, David Ireland, the um, forgotten poet and novelist who's really fantastic... We stick to the coastal rind, you know. Yeah. But Tasmania doesn't have the same inner mythology around it. And it has both landmass archipelagos, but then village archipelagos. And that's driven by rainfall sun, rainfall sun, rainfall sun, fertility, um, yeah. and the, the amount of produce you can get in smaller allotment farms, and then the delivery of that out, you know, because it's just a food bowl. So you have these smaller community-based narratives or short stories growing up within this longer form narrative of Tasmania and they're called Bracknell and they're called Boat Harbour and they have a church and they have a footy team and they have a CWA and they have a bakery and that you know yeah um, and so there are natural chapters here if we can get over the thing of the adversarial rivalry of the north south and that being driven by our shadow of the mainland thing but feel comfortable within those two different forms of archipelagos or chapters, then I think there is a tremendous opportunity to think of, say, UTAS as not three campuses, but it's an island campus. Yeah. And what does it mean for me to be in discussion with David Adams at um, UTAS about us possibly delivering a project for 65 students in Rosebury that opens up new pathways into educational experiences to young people and especially young women who would probably never consider UTAS as the next option instead of the stroller. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So that, to me, that says that is a campus and they're thinking in that way. So to do with the size that you're talking about, there are a whole lot of ways in which, providing we can reimagine, we don't get sucked into the cottage garden version of mainland living. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, um, providing we allow ourselves to be here and listen to our own story and, frankly fund the storytellers in the island to, to really think deeply you know mm. and to do that and this is not critical at all but to do that whilst maintaining the big budget items big brand items the big tourist bed items mm. that are coming in savvy festival footprint you know through the brilliant work that Mona's doing and just watch the shadow of that because we need to keep our story much bigger than than the, the delivery the redelivery of the outrageous behaviour of the 70s <laughs> in Dark Mofo. Oh, my God. You could bring back your show. I could. <laughs> I could. You are listening to WTF 2050. What is Tasmania's future? Future. Right, well, my first song <laughs> um, is about digital inclusion. Put your knives and forks down. And, no. um, 
So we've been piloting a project on the northwest coast. I mean, up there between Table Cape and Rocky Cape, we call it our R&D precinct, and we try everything up there. You know, like working with the Namajira family, they came down, we went up, and it was an exchange. And, you know, it's really interesting to keep doing that rather than being mesmerised by only the stories of the place. Um, and one of the things we've been experimenting with is... Um, because it's a designated family violence hotspot, according to the Prime Minister and the stats support that, there is a culture, intergenerational culture of some of those issues. They're driven by a whole range of other issues to do with isolation, income, the percentages of people that are on welfare in Burnie, which I think is 67%, are getting some form of welfare. And on the northwest coast, um, you move out of the towns into the hinterland, you know, there's very poor assistance with mental health, there's very strong addictions, etc. So it's ripe for violence to be expressed within those intimate relationships. And so you could go, hey, family violence is wrong and nobody would listen. Or you could go, well, who are likely to be the victims going forward of that or witnessing or experiencing? That was a Ducati 200. (laughs) Um, Who are likely to be the victims? And then how can you step around that victim narrative and go, who are likely to be the change makers? Well, they are. And so what do they need to become change makers? They need what we all have, which is the pathway of our own aspirations, our own desire, what thrills us and motivates us. And so to get to that, you need to have models to actually be able to look at that because sometimes culturally those models are the Kardashians, not that I've got anything against them, but they are cheap candy, you know. So we started Project O as a primary prevention project that would look at young women, leadership, their aspirations and their aspirations for their community and then giving them the skills to be change makers and not the ones who are cherry picked out by companies and universities, but the young people who are going to stay there, who love it, who want to be there. The aim was to build in a town of 5,000 people to look at what would happen if you built 100 young women leaders at a rate of 20 a year who were working as each other's peers over that five years. How would that change a community? Because it's true in all kinds of communities and certainly up there that if you change a young woman, you change a community. If you change a young man, you upgrade the footy team. (laughs) It tends to roll that way. So Project O began and the first two years were super successful and we exported it to Robin in WA into Cooma in New South Wales and also to Canberra. Well, the one thing that we realised at the same time, and it was to do with winning the Telstra Charity of the Year in Tasmania and the Business of the Year in Tasmania, we realised that all the things that these young women were beginning to use had a digital dimension. And then we looked at the stats for digital inclusion because there's an index that's done every year and Tasmania's behind the mainland. And then the northwest is the worst in Tasmania and the demographic young women, um, rural, low socioeconomic, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander or mobile only, those are the overlays that are worst of the worst. So suddenly we realised that we had an obligation to concentrate on that and develop strategies and policies around that just as the government has to and the education department have to. Because if you start looking at the subtleties of all these things, like if you look at Rosalie Martin's work on speech therapy in prisons, you know, that's backed up internationally. Super subtle, bloody obvious, you know. Mm. So if you look at, look at these young women, then suddenly you realise that we're at exactly the same moment in history as when blackboard and chalk was invented. And it's like going, well, I'm sorry, but that's only for friends. I mean, yeah. for, for Hutchins or yeah, for yeah. Geelong Grammar. Um, nobody else can use it. So we have to be active, we have to be proactive, we have to be pushing ahead for these groups that are falling behind. And so 
digital justice is is a big part of Project O. We've introduced it as a whole stream and good on them. You know, they haven't said yes yet, but, you know, Telstra and NBN Cal are pushing us and pushing our thinking and are wanting to put money in. And also, uh, when Big Art <laughs> won the Telstra Awards, I don't know if I told you this, but we won the charity award. We weren't expecting it because it's, you know, it's the arts, it's unlikely and all that. <laughs> um, the Premier was there. He said, congratulations. I was standing with... Andrew Viney, who's from Burnie, who's in a band that Tasmanians love called the Fish John West Reject that reform every now and again, yeah. and it's the Premier's favourite band. Ah, oh, right. So, so um, he came up to talk to Andrew and you know said, so when am I going to get to play in the band when you reform? Can I do a couple of songs? <laughs> and, and we talked about that. Sure, that's not a problem. And then I said, look, I don't know if you're a gambling man, but if we win the big award, the business of the year, which is very, very unlikely for a charity, could I address Cabinet? We shook hands, made the bet, and he said, yeah, all right, sure. <laughs> and so I had that privilege of, of speaking to Cabinet, and one of the big parts of it was digital inclusion right. across all portfolios yeah. and its subtle relationship to family violence prevention and Project O, because if you fall behind the digital economy, you fall behind the educational pathways, you are locked into lower and lower incomes, and they are compounding issues mm. for getting out of or avoiding family violence in your community. That is now, as we speak, in front of um, premiers. You know, I'm very interested in bipartisan support for it, as I'm sure both the two majors and the Greens will be as well. And we hope to continue to run Project O, but we're hoping to be delivering this over the next four years. It'll then be 140 young leaders and then the Northwest Coast becomes this great place for exporting tried and tested IP yeah. um, to other communities internationally. When you get to 2050, if we can really cotton onto the privilege of the dramaturgy of the geography, how it forms communities here, what it allows us to do in terms of size and scale and access to governments, etc. If we can get hold of that, then make the whole island the campus and think mm. of uh, think of ourselves generously beyond the island walls. Mm. Um, you know, we can be the R and D incubator for the country mm. and for the world. And that's a shift in our thinking from the isolationist, inward-looking, give us some free highways. No, you can't have any of our power. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I've got to leave and go to you know Melbourne Uni. That's the turnaround we need, it, and it sits within the um, intellectual property of being a maker with your brain and a maker with your hands. Yeah. To me, that's part of 2050. Yeah. Well, I knew that you addressed Cabinet. You told me that, but it, you didn't tell me it was some, through some dirty, <laughs> shabby little deal you did with the Premier at Casino. <laughs> good gambling, I call it. Good gambling. <laughs> I think the thing that matches it in Tasmania is just not that thing that you're aspiring to with the hands and the mind, but the heart's here for me as well because of our extraordinary landscape. There is something I get from Tasmania that I don't get from other places and I actually can't even describe what mm. it is. Yeah, well, look out because in the same way that other homo sapiens came here and were mesmerised, you know, over the last 2,000 generations by what the country tells you... Yeah. You've been here for your couple of generations. Yeah. And so have I. And you're picking up in your DNA and in the homeopathy. Mm. Now I'm sounding like an old hippie. <laughs> in, in, the, in what's passed from your parents to you. You know, like yeah, all yeah. of that. Um, in the mystery of country and what it is that 
Aboriginal people um, feel as incredibly deep, unchangeable obligations and deep personifications of, of you know, joy, geographical mm. joy, mm. lo and behold, us who are, you know, suckling on the teat of the victory narrative mm. are actually feeling it in our bones mm. and that will continue because, you know, you talk to elders around this country who have a level of wisdom to move beyond the trauma and not deny it, mm. there is a deep welcome and there mm. is a sense of, you know, you haven't yet earned the way into um, the private business of our culture and our country, but mm. you are feeling the country to which you belong. Mm. Yeah. You know, Allery Sandy, um, Nana Pansy and um, mm. Nana Violet, a whole lot of people up in Robin, when you sit with them, mm. will identify what you're feeling. When I finished a project called Napaji Napaji in Central Australia that was based out of Pukaja, 600 k's south of Alice Springs, um, I had a, a sort of a deep grief that went on for months afterwards that where I couldn't, it was like there were strings attached, there were like yeah. these goo attached, and I couldn't leave that behind. Part of it, sure, it was nostalgia for a really beautiful project and all of that, but <laughs> in the end, I sought some help from Anjali McKenzie and Auntie Mary, and I went to their house. And they said, "Yeah, sure, come on in." You know, <laughs> and, um, it was at night, and I rocked up at the at the designated time, and they were watching telly. They were watching the serial uh, Nicholas Nickleby, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and chewing. Um, I think it's called Minkle Park. There, I can't quite recall now. Anyway, it's like a, a bush tobacco, chewing tobacco. Yeah. Which has some quite strong properties, I should add. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then and there was nothing private about this. They were just, um, they, Auntie Mary said, do you want to do it? And Punjani said, ah, oh, no, you do it. And they, no, you do it. So they got me. <laughs> and it was quite a high point in the narrative of Nicholas Nickleby and they got me to lie down. I'd forgotten all about this. They got me to lie on the floor and to pull my T-shirt up. <laughs> and then, and there was a fee attached to this. And, yeah. um, and they're watching telly and chewing on the tobacco and then, sucking something out of my belly and yeah. and they would pause every now and again at a dramatic high point and watch the telly and then she'd come back and then you're right oh, you're done and then and then they said uh, now you might see something like a, a creature that's sort of black won't be able to quite see it but you'll feel better you know and, and let us know if you don't and and then they you know said where's the money <laughs> I gave them the fee and and I left and I felt better yeah and I didn't have that same sensation at all now I can't tell you because I don't have any cultural expertise whether that was wonderful brilliant pungity snake oil yeah and, yeah um, or placebo. Or placebo, yeah. or a ritual to which I was allowed to be privy as somebody who was very much on the periphery of the Pijanjara nation. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it healed the feeling that you're talking about, which I think Australians, as contemporary Australians of whatever culture, yeah. we easily miss the tug of country. And, and mm. I think this is rocky ground to talk about, but important still, I think. If you look at how negligent we've been as the victors, in inverted commas, yeah. in telling the non-victory narrative and opening the door to be inclusive of all stories here. And then you look at the rising middle class in Asian countries mm. and the magnetism of Australia. Mm. There is a policy failure because if you look at Uluru and the 275,000 visitors you know, that are coming, the high percentage of middle class visitors from Asian countries who know nothing of indigeneity or Aboriginality and are being robbed of the opportunity to understand that that is our story. It's mm. not the opera house. Mm. 
there is the potential for another wave of clumsy loss because yeah. because of the rightful changing makeup of, of Australian demographics. Now, they're nuances that we have to be really careful of and we have to be really careful in Tasmania in terms of 2050 because what is coming back culturally, what is asserting itself culturally in this state in really strong ways, mm. um, Aboriginal people with a great deal of courage who are moving beyond the difficulties of self-doubt mm. and asserting in family groups and community groups their new and emerging understandings of um, what was almost lost. Yeah. And that is the transitioning contemporary Tasmania, and that's where we live. Yeah. So the Tomijina people where I live and work are only beginning to speak up because they're only just being given the opportunity to do so. Well, mm. 2050, you know, we might get to something called Forgiveness Day. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Scott Rankin, thank you very much. Pleasure. A Forgiveness Day. What a fantastic idea that would be as a day of national celebration. We'd probably look back on it in 30 years and it would be just as entrenched as our January 26th is now. Absolutely. So on next week's show, Leanne, we have the creator of High Five, McLeod's Daughters, historical novelist, Posey Graham Evans. And can you remember the theme song of High Five, Anna? Can you give us a tune? One, two, three, four. High Five! (laughs) Is that enough? Yeah, that was great. (laughs) Here's a little bit of Posey. Even the most jaded of people from the biggest of cities who live the biggest of lives that the world can offer comes to a place like Tasmania and gets out, then their soul fills up again. And even the most cynical of people is touched by the great big sky and the fact that you can still see the stars. So we have such a bounty and I think for the good of the world, for the good of us all, that needs conversation. WTF 2050 is hosted by me, Anna Bateman. And me, Leanne Minshall. We are supported by the Australia Institute and all of our excellent music and post-production is by Fletcher Babb. Extra recording, Michael Shelley at The Green Room in Hobart. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow the conversation on Facebook, Twitter and at our website, wtf2050.org.au.